an easy target. Everybody was believing that I was involved in this criminal activity. So I was an easy target for Bradfield to frame. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of It's Crime Time. I chose another case from Pennsylvania, but I chose an old case because there's a lot of twists and turns to it. It gets pretty crazy at times. It can get a little hard to understand. And as of today, it is still technically unsolved. I don't believe that it's unsolved in terms of who I believe really did it, but it is considered to be unsolved. And I'm talking about the case of Susan Reinert and her two children, Michael and Karen. Before I continue, I just want to let you know that I have been sporadic in uploading episodes again due to something going on with my voice. Not sure what's going on with my vocal cords. I lose my voice almost every week, and I just feel that it would be pointless to try to record an episode when you guys wouldn't even be able to hear me or understand me anyway, and that could get pretty annoying. So I'm just putting that out there. All right, everyone, it's crime time. Susan J. Gallagher was born on September 1st, 1942 in Ridgeway, that is in Elk County in northwestern Pennsylvania. Her father, William Gallagher, was a school board president who married a school teacher named Jane. So Susan had naturally been born into an educational family, and later her father, William, became the business manager of a local newspaper called the Ridgeway Record. Her brother, William Patrick Gallagher, said that as a child, Susan was a happy little girl with these little pigtails, and she was just a very giving person, and she helped people find themselves and grow. So she loved helping people. She loved helping people continue on their path to being great or being successful or achieving their goals. So she sounded like a great person, um, even as a child. Susan had already known basically what her future would entail when she was a child, when she was in school, and she worked towards it. She was going to be a teacher, just like her mom and her father at one point. And that's what she wanted to do. So she really worked hard in school to achieve her goals. And at Ridgeway High School, she was the vice president of the Future Teachers of America. She was the class treasurer, the yearbook staff's business manager, and the president of the drama club. She belonged to the National Honor Society, the Science Club, Girls Chorus, and the school paper. So she kept herself very busy in school. She wanted to kind of explore everything that the school had to offer, and she liked to belong and be a part of things. During her summers off of school, she worked in the records circulation department. And then later she attended Grove City College to pursue her English degree. And at this college, she met Kenneth Reinert. He was enlisted in the Air Force at this time and they began dating as undergrads. Sue obtained her bachelor's degree and then her master's degree from Pennsylvania State University in 1966. Sue and Kenneth married in 1965. So this was shortly after she graduated from Grove City and was going into Pennsylvania State University to get her master's degree. After this, Susan and Kenneth began moving around to duty stations all over the country. 
because of him being in the Air Force. And they moved to Sacramento, California, Rome, New York, and even Puerto Rico. And then they finally decided to settle in the Philadelphia region in 1971. By this time, Susan had already established her career as a school teacher. During their move, she had taken several jobs as a teacher at various schools. And over the course of their moves, Susan had given birth to a daughter named Karen and then a son about a year later named Michael. Sadly, in 1974, Susan and Kenneth decided to separate. Their divorce was finalized in 1976, and they say the split was amicable. Sue then settled into the region of Ardmore, Pennsylvania, which is an unincorporated community of Haverford Township just outside of Philadelphia. She lived in a two and a half story home along Woodcrest Avenue, and this was said to be a very good home for her and her children. It was a pretty big home and it was plenty for them. And she and Kenneth split custody of their children. They stayed with her most of the time. And I feel like this is probably due to his line of work, but he did get the children every other weekend. And on some holidays, he would get the children as well. It is said that Sue was an exceptional mother to her children. She spent almost all of her time with her children when she wasn't working and participating in the various activities that she participated and outside of work. She started working as an English teacher at Upper Marion High School in 1971, and she continued her work there until 1979. The staff at this school adored her, as well as her students. It's said that her students teased her because she had kind of this squeaky, high-pitched voice, and when she got really excited, it would crack, and when she got flustered, it would do the same thing. So I feel like I can relate. My voice isn't very high pitched and squeaky per se, but when I get excited, it cracks and I can't really get, nothing comes out. So they often teased her for it, but she just kind of accepted this. She accepted that that was how her voice was and it just became a part of her and who she was. So she easily bonded with her students and she was kind of on their level. She tried to get on their level and inspire them by personally connecting with her students and they just really liked her and they felt that she really was helping them she really invested her time into them i mean i had teachers like this in school as well there were teachers that were there to just teach and then there was ones that just went beyond they would help you grow as a person whether it be you know kind of being your your therapist like you you could tell these teachers anything they would do their best to help you feel better they would you know, they wanted to see you succeed. They wanted to see you move forward in life and grow. And she was one of those teachers. Susan supervised several clubs and groups at the school. She was a co-advisor for the school yearbook. She taught a film class of her own making. She was very interested in film. And as far as I know, she noticed that the school didn't have one. So she offered to kind of create this film class and they approved it and they let her have her own film class. Even as a teacher, she often kept to herself on a daily basis when it came to her home life. So I found this interesting because she's part of these large groups. She seems to be a social person, but I guess when it came to her home life, she didn't really spend a lot of time with friends or, you know, doing anything out partying. She just preferred to read, go see plays and watch films. And she was just a very quiet and passive person, which is, like I said, awkward to me because when you learn about her and the difference she made in people's lives, you just wouldn't take her as a quiet, passive person. But I think 
It was probably her way of winding down. She, you know, was dealing with people all week long, talking to people, dealing with groups. So at, on her free time, you know, she spent time with her children and she just kind of kept to herself at home, which I don't blame her. She was a member of a social and support group for divorced or single parents, and it was known as Parents Without Partners. She became very active in this organization. She trained people throughout Pennsylvania how to moderate group meetings, and she organized events throughout the region of Valley Forge. So she used this group after she got a divorce, and it was something that really helped her. It was said to really help her kind of get through her divorce and figure out how she was going to, you know, take care of her children on her own. In 1974, Susan had been having an affair with a co-worker of hers at the high school, William Bradfield. He often went by Bill Bradfield. And the two had been English teachers together, and Bill was the chair of the school's English department. And this affair is actually what is believed to have ultimately led to Kenneth and Susan's divorce because she began this affair in the same year they separated. So I'm not sure if maybe their marriage obviously was already crumbling to begin with, and she just was seeking solace and you know someone else and then that really sealed the deal there wasn't much about that but i did find that it was said to be kind of whenever they decided okay you're we're definitely splitting up now you know you're you're already seeing someone else susan and bill had decided to keep their relationship private they didn't want to disclose it to their other co-workers so they kind of kept their romantic entanglements from interfering with their careers. They didn't want other people to know about it in school. They didn't want, you know, drama that was attached, but others knew about this. Um, and they say that her and Bill had been prepared, preparing to be married, sorry. But I beg to differ on this. Like I said, I, I can tell, and you will hear a lot of information. Bill ran his mouth. Bill was a talker. He was dramatic. He lied a lot and he just loved spreading things around. He loved drama. So I guess, he claimed he didn't want people to know about her, but they definitely knew, and that was because of him. Sue later found out that she was just one of several women that Bill had been dating. It wasn't exclusive. She thought it was, but he had a relationship with another fellow English teacher named Sue as well, Sue Myers, for almost a decade. So he was already seeing Sue Myers and then decided to see Susan Reiner. At one point in 1977, Sue Myers and Susan had a confrontation in the teacher's lounge over what Bill had been doing. Sue Myers didn't believe Bill when he told her he was not involved with Susan. And this confrontation actually led to Sue Myers kicking Susan Reinhardt and leaving scratches and bruises on her. So the fight did get physical. Since friendships were pretty important to Bill, um, friendships with men, so that he could kind of just whine about his women, he made other male friends at the school, which he often gossiped and complained with about his women. One friend was Vince Valaitis, another English teacher at the school. When Valaitis was looking for a home, Bill suggested the apartment complex where he and Susan Myers lived. So he and Sue Myers actually had a house together. They were living in this apartment or whatever together while he was out seeing Susan Reinhardt. This guy was ridiculous. I have a lot of choice words for this man, but... You know, so he also, well, he also became even closer with Vince Valaitis because Vince did move there and he just became very close with Sue Myers and Bill. Bill would often talk very badly about Susan Reinhardt to them, saying she's the second worst teacher at the school and that she was always chasing him and he just wasn't interested in her. In 
So he made it out like she was kind of obsessed with him and she wanted him, but he, he was like disgusted by her and she was just this like, well, um, in today's terms, simp. She was like simping for it, like she was obsessed and he just wasn't interested, but that is absolutely not true. That is not what's going down. He had led her on for years, um, making her believe that he, you know, really loved her and they were going to be married. So definitely, um, definitely a drama queen he is. He sounds like, yeah, just a scumbag, but that's my opinion. Sue Reiner had lost her mother in 1978 and she had begun to rely more and more on this Parents Without Partners group. It helped her overcome her loss. She had other people to hang out with, other people to talk to. Um, so Vince Velitis, Sue Myers, and Bill actually became business partners later and they opened a store together. It was an arts and crafts store because this was Sue Myers' dream. She always wanted to open this craft store. So the guys helped her. Bill also had another close friend named Chris Pappas. Chris and Vince never hung out with Bill at the same time. He liked to keep his friendships separate. So he could tell kind of different versions of these stories to different friends of his, which he lied a lot. And I don't know how he kept him, you know, kept up with the stories to different people, but he would tell different stories to Vince and Chris about Susan Reinhardt. Anyway, just some backstory. So Susan's children, Karen and Michael, were ages 10 and 11 in 1979. Not much is really known about them, except that Karen was described as being a lot like Susan. She was petite, shy, but she was athletic. She was actively participating in gymnastics and softball. Her true passion was arts and crafts, however. Karen had wanted to pursue a teaching career as of the last time she was seen. So Karen was pretty much following in her mother's footsteps. Her son, Michael, was said to be the opposite of his mother and sister. He was very rambunctious, outgoing, constantly active. He loved talking to people. And he he was active in several sports, but his sport of choice was baseball. He absolutely loved like baseball, and he was just a huge fan of the Philadelphia Phillies. And he could recite their lineups. So he was very knowledgeable about baseball. Both children attended Chestnut Wald Elementary School, which had only been a quarter of a mile from Susan's home in Ardmore. Karen had just finished sixth grade in 1979, and Michael had just finished fourth grade. On June 22nd of 1979, a neighbor saw Susan and her two children leaving the home. They were kind of hurrying to their car. And at this time, there was kind of a really bad hailstorm going on. So the neighbors were kind of perplexed as to why Susan would be dragging her kids out in the middle of a hailstorm to drive them somewhere. But the neighbor just kind of hoped that she'd be all right driving in the weather, didn't really say anything. And then the neighbor never saw Susan and her children again. Sources say that Susan was due to give a speech at Parents Without Partners 50 miles away in Allentown. She had hoped to turn this trip into a fun weekend for her children. She wanted to kind of do this speech, get it over with and take her children out exploring, just to do some fun things for the weekend. But Susan's body was found on June 25th, 1979, in the trunk of her car, in a parking lot in Harrisburg, 90 miles from her home. A man had been cutting through this parking lot, kind of in his car and saw this orange Plymouth Horizon hatchback just abandoned there. And I guess the trunk was partially propped open. He thought it was kind of weird, so he decided to check it out and he found Susan's body in the trunk, which I said had been slightly propped open. Her body was nude, badly beaten, and she had been wrapped up with a chain some believe she may have been dragged by the chain wrapped on her for a short distance, but that's unclear. 
Her children were nowhere to be found in the area. However, it's believed that after she was beaten, she survived another 24 to 36 hours and eventually was then injected with a lethal dose of morphine um, whenever whoever had injured her noticed that she wasn't dying. They came by, injected her with morphine, and that was that. So I now need to provide an insane amount of backstory on this so you can kind of form an opinion about who the real killer might be and kind of what led up to her death. So while Susan was still alive, there was a man by the name of Dr. J.C. Smith, who was actually the principal at the school where she, Bill, Sue Myers, and Vince Velitis, and Chris Pappas worked. So they all worked for the same school. And Dr. J.C. Smith was the principal. This man was a very weird man. And being a principal was kind of an odd profession for him, for sure, it sounded like. He hated children. And he scolded Susan Reiner at one time because she let her children in his office for a short period of time for something. And he said that it wasn't a daycare. And despite his quirks and strange, dry, sardonic attitude, it said that he had been a competent principal. So he was good at his job, but he was very weird and just hated kids. So people weren't sure why he was working at a school if he hated children, because he was going to be dealing with children every day. Jay was tall with hooded eyes and thinning hair, and he had been a colonel in the Army Reserve, and he wanted to be a general. He held a PhD in education. He had a troubled home life. He was married to a woman who worked for a dry cleaner and had a daughter named Stephanie. Stephanie had been a heroin addict, along with her husband, Eddie. Their younger daughter, Sherry, was not an addict, but it was said that she was pretty emotionally disturbed. Jay would only ever admit to having one extramarital affair with the married female principal of an elementary school. He had also subscribed to Swingers magazines, gay and straight ones, and he also had a strong interest in bestiality with many books and pornographic material on the subject he had he had kind of collected there's no evidence suggesting that he actually practiced bestiality but he was very very into the subject and all of this caused issues in his marriage and his wife left him but she eventually returned to him she was told she had cancer and she lived with him until her death sometimes when susan reinert was teaching a late class she would leave Karen and Michael in the principal's office, like I'd mentioned earlier. And Smith did not appreciate that. And he told his secretary, quote, I don't like teachers bringing their damn kids around school. We're not here to babysit, end quote. Quote, you'd have to like those kids, end quote. The secretary retorted, both Michael and Karen were known as well-behaved and unusually sweet kids. I don't like any kids, is what Smith told her. On August 27, 1977, Jay had entered a Sears store in St. David's dressed as an employee from Brink to collect the store's deposits. And I'm sure everyone's familiar with Brink. They kind of bring money to stores and collect the store's money for the week. They drive these, like, I don't know if they're armored, but they drive these, like, you know, kind of armored-looking trucks that say Brink on them. And then the employees are dressed all the same, and they go in and collect the money and everything. Later, a Brink employee came into the store to collect deposits, which kind of confused the store employees because they had a feeling that one of the employees was there to steal money. This same incident occurred at another Sears store in Nashamini on December 17th of that year. So Jay basically entered the Sears store pretending to be a Brink worker, and then the real Brink worker entered the store, and the store is kind of like, okay, he already came to collect deposits, what's going on here? 
This time, one of the cashiers took the Brink employee's ID to her office to compare, and the name Albert J. Wharton checked out. But when she compared signatures, one signature did not match the other signatures of Wharton. The fake Brink employee sensed some danger when the cashier called over the intercom in code, hoping he would not understand, so he tried to enter her office to get his card back. In August of 1978, a young couple called the police after seeing a tall man pull his car next to a Ford van, get out, and look in the window. They sensed that he may have been there to rob the van. When police showed up, they asked the tall man for his license, and it turned out to be J.C. Smith, who had a gun in his hand at the time. Police had tried to get him to put his gun away. They kept telling him, you know, to drop the gun. Jay was 55 at this time of his arrest, and a variety of items were found in his car from a syringe of tranquilizer, four loaded handguns, a hood mask, and bolt cutters. When the police searched his home, they located marijuana, illegal pills, four gallons of nitric acid, and office equipment. The nitric acid and office supplies were stolen from the Upper Marion School District where he worked. Brink badges and uniforms were also located along with his extensive porn collection. After this, Bill Bradfield began circulating rumors to his friends that Jay had been a mafia hitman. Bill began telling people that he believed Jay was going to kill Susan Reinhardt because she knew too much about his trash, whatever that means. He always claimed to his friends that he was spending a lot of time trying to protect Susan from Jay. Bill constantly talked about having to protect Susan from Jay and all the wild things Jay supposedly was doing. Part of me believes this was kind of his alibi for wanting to kill Susan himself. In December of 1978, Susan applied for life insurance for $500,000, naming Bill the sole beneficiary. The insurance company denied her application because they said she was overinsuring her life, and I guess they kind of found it fishy. In January of 1979, Sue confided in her brother that she planned to invest $25,000 in a certificate offering 12% interest. She asked if he wanted in on the deal, and he declined. In February, Susan told a teller at a bank in the King of Prussia area that she needed to withdraw $25,000 of the $30,000 in her account. The teller became suspicious and tried to explain to her that there are no legitimate investments that would require her to hand over cash. He offered to write her a cashier's check instead, and he offered other ways to try to give her this money, but he did not want to give her the $25,000 cash and the bank refused to give her that amount because there were laws prohibiting them from giving over that amount if they thought the withdrawal was being victimized, and they thought she was. So they didn't want to give her her money. So Susan started taking the money out in increments of $1,500 at a time, and she began making $5,000 withdrawals until she reached the $25,000. Shortly after this occurred, Oh, I better back that up. Sorry. Um, so she took $1,500. That's all the bank would give her at that time because they thought she was being victimized. So then she decided she was going to take out $5,000 at a time until she reached the $25,000. So sorry, I explained that weird. Shortly after this occurred, Bill informed his friend Chris Pappas and partner Wendy about $25,000 that he had saved up over the years and said he was going to purchase a boat. Bill asked Chris and Wendy to rent a safety deposit box with all three of their names on it. Now, this is weird because Sue had just drawn out $25,000 and apparently she gave it to Bill because Bill told her, you know, he was going to invest it for her. But he was telling his friends that he was getting a boat and that this money is his own money that he saved. So awkwardly enough, on March 3rd, 1979, as I've mentioned, this is when Dr. J.C. Smith was arrested for his theft crimes. And the, the day that Susan Reinhardt took out the life insurance policy, she took out another one for $250,000, plus a $200,000 policy for accidental death, including murder. 
She changed her will, which no longer included her brother or her children, but made Bill the sole beneficiary. On May 30th, Bill testified in Smith's trial, giving him an alibi for the time of the Sears theft. But the jury wasn't convinced, and Smith was sentenced to prison time. The odd thing about this is, Bill had claimed he hated Smith constantly, telling his friends that Smith was after Susan and he was trying to protect Susan and he hated, hated what, you know, Smith was doing. And so for him to actually testify in Smith's trial on his behalf was very, very fishy. In June, Susan then took out two more life insurance policies, one for 100000 and one for 150000 Along with what she inherited from her mother's path, passing, her estate was now worth $1.1 million. The sad thing about this is that Susan was deeply in love with Bill. And perhaps he convinced her to take all of these policies out by telling her that Jay Smith was stalking her and he was going to kill her. So as a precaution, she just took the policies out because Bill had somehow convinced her that Jay, was, Jay Smith was going to kill her. People do really stupid things when they're in love with people. And the sad part is Bill never loved Susan at all. He just used her. Bill planned to spend the summer of 1979 studying at the St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, but he wanted to go on a beach trip before he left. So he invited his friends, Chris Papa, Sue Myers, and Vince Velitis, which is weird because he never hung out with them all at once, but at this time he did. He claims he wanted people around him that weekend in case something happened to Susan Reinert. He claims he would have been looked at as a suspect because of her changing her will. So he kind of wanted all of these people as his alibi. Late Friday, June 22nd, 1979, Vince Velitis was having dinner with Sue Myers at the apartment she shared with Brill with Bill Bradfield. Bradfield's son, Martin, and the young man's girlfriend were also present there. But Bill Bradfield had not yet shown up. After dinner, the group kind of went down to Velitis' place to enjoy a movie. As the hours went on, Myers decided that Bradfield was not going to show up for the trip to Cape May after all. So she went back home and went to bed. It was about 11.15 p.m. when Bradfield knocked on Velitis' door. He asked after Sue Myers and was told she had gone to bed. Bradfield exchanged some formalities with Martin and his date before the couple left. Then he turned to Vince Velitis and said, get some gas for the car. Let's get it packed. Let's go. It was after midnight when Bradfield Myers and Velitis drove to Papa's house to pick him up. Papa's took over the driving. On the way, Bradfield exploded with this kind of tirade about some kind of apprehension he had about Sue Reinert. He said, quote, I'm afraid this is it. End quote. I'm afraid this is the weekend Dr. Smith could kill Susan Reinert. I tried to protect her. I followed him toward her house. I circled the house 14 times. I lost him in the hailstorm. So he shouted the first quote and he just continued shouting the rest of this to everyone as if he had this horrible gut feeling this was the weekend that Susan was going to die. You don't know that, Velida said to him. He was trying to reassure him. You don't know that he's going to do her any harm. Bradfield seemed to give up, quote, it's in God's hands, end quote. And that's what he said to Velitis. At about 5 o'clock a.m., the quartet arrived at the heirloom apartments in Cape May, New Jersey. They were dismayed because both of the rooms they had ordered were locked and one was actually occupied. So the group sat in the corridor with their baggage and they were just griping about this situation. 
The owner of Heirloom showed up at about 7 a.m. and she was kind of embarrassed that she had made a mistake about when their rooms had been reserved. She put Bradfield and Myers in one room, Velitis and Pop was in another. The weekend was not really a relaxing vacation. Bradfield accompanied Velitis to Saturday Night Mass. Quote, I want to pray for Susan Reinhardt. End quote. And then he told, I guess he told Velitis, you should pray for her too. Later that night, Bradfield, Myers, and Papas went to a theater. Bradfield saved all of their ticket stubs that night for some weird reason. On Sunday morning, Bradfield told Velitis that they needed to attend another mass. And, or, sorry, quote, we've got to pray for Susan Reiner. This is to keep evil from her, end quote, he explained. Before leaving the heirloom apartments that Monday, Bradfield paid their bill with a check that had four names on it, his own and that of the friends with him. He asked for a written receipt, and he told the proprietor that she must include Friday on the receipt. So this is all really fishy, really weird. He kept telling his friends, oh, she's going to die. we got to pray for her. And then he was keeping track of every little thing they did. He was keeping receipts, ticket stubs, and he wanted a specific date written on the check and all of their names to prove that he was with them. So it seemed like he was establishing some kind of alibi. When Bradfield and Myers got home, the first thing he told his longtime girlfriend was he had to phone Jay Smith's attorney. After the call, Bradfield beamed, quote, well, Jay Smith was sentenced to jail. Susan Reinhardt is out of harm's way, end quote. He seemed to have simply forgotten the fact that he had testified as an alibi witness for the ex-principal and had maintained that Smith was innocent of the crimes for which he was tried. Rather, he appeared really delighted that the jury had ignored his testimony. So Velitis was preparing for the trip to St. John's College in Santa Fe when an overjoyed Bradfield burst in to his room upon him. Quote, I just called Dr. Smith's lawyer. They sentenced him to prison. End quote. Bill kind of sank into a chair and started like weeping dramatically and said, thank God he's in jail. I saved that woman's life. End quote. But he didn't. He testified for him. He testified for Jay. So... By some stroke of luck, the jury decided that Bradfield's testimony was BS and they sentenced Jay Smith anyway. Bradfield went to Papa's house and the scene was again reenacted. What he was telling Velitis and them, he, he told him to reenacted this whole dramatic crying thing he was doing. The evening of the Monday that Susan Reinhardt's body was discovered in her hatchback, Bill Bradfield and Chris Papas took a flight to Santa Fe. Joanne Aitken began a 2,000-mile drive there behind the wheel of Bradfield's car. Jay Smith arrived at the court to be sentenced, and he was 20 minutes late for his court hearing, and the judge ultimately sentenced him to two to five years. Police inventoried the items that were found in Reinhardt's car. Most of them were ordinary things, road map, a hairbrush, some candy wrappers, and then weirdly enough, they found this dildo under the front seat of her car, kind of weird, and then underneath the body was something that would kind of later be great significance. It was a brand new blue comb and it was inscribed in white. 79th U.S. Arcom, along with an insignia of the Cross of Lorraine. Later, they would find that thousands of similar combs were handed out as a recruiting gimmick. The next day, a close friend of Susan Reinhardt's, Sharon Lee, phoned Bradfield at St. John's to tell him of Reinhardt's death. Quote, do you know what was going on in Harrisburg or where she was planning to go that weekend? End quote. And that's what Lee had asked, Ryan, or sorry, had asked Bradfield. I have no idea, Bradfield replied. You were supposed to go to England with her this summer. 
And that's what Lee had said to him. No, Susan was pursuing me and trying to persuade me to go to England, but I told her I wasn't interested. This is what Bradfield told Susan Ryan was friendly. Lee asked Bradfield if he knew where the children were or who was caring for them. The children? Oh, yes, the children. How old were the children? And apparently Sharon Lee kind of got a chill at this moment because he had spoken of the children in a past tense, which was really weird because no one knew where they were. No one knew if they were dead as well yet. So he said were. So that kind of creeped her out. Later, Bradfield got a call from Vince Velitis. Um, this was a couple days after this incident. He said, I've talked to a priest. The priest told me that it's important for you to go directly to the police and tell them everything you know about J.C. Smith. After a pause, Bradfield suggests that it might not have been J.C. Smith after all. Maybe another man she was having an affair with probably killed her. And Bradfield told Velitis that he was going to talk to the police. An autopsy was later performed on Reinhardt. Some half a dozen small red fibers invisible to the naked eye were actually found in her hair. A couple of blue fibers were found. And there was a white substance around her mouth and in her hair. It was not semen. But it was actually a material that came from some kind of adhesive tape. The coroner made a really bad mistake, though, with Susan's autopsy. He was unable to find a needle mark in her body. So he actually described the cause of death as asphyxiation rather than the fatal injection of morphine. And then after the lab report came back, it would be corrected that there was morphine in her system. And her ex-husband, Kenneth Reiner, was summoned to identify the body of his ex-wife. He was a suspect automatically. Sergeant Joe Van Nort and his partner, Jack Holtz, observed his reaction carefully. He appeared to be really distraught, and he was answering their questions. He asked one of his own questions. Well, who's taking care of the kids? What kids? Is how one of the officers replied. The father and the officers made their own separate investigations. No one knew where Karen and Michael Reiner were, or at least no one would say they knew where they were. A major problem with Susan's case occurred also due to the fact that Susan's body ended up being cremated before investigators finished examining it. So there was kind of an autopsy and everything, but they weren't done and then it just got cremated. Days and weeks went by with investigators kind of combing a variety of locations, hoping to find the children and hoping that they would be found alive but this feeling of them being found alive and this hope kind of was dwindling because it had been so long investigators began digging up wooded areas but they found nothing from santa fe bill bradfield called vince velitis bradfield knew that velitis was talking to investigators quote if you speak to the police again you'll put me in the electric chair end quote and that's what bradfield had told velitis quote but bill you haven't done anything wrong jay smith killed susan reiner you tried your best to prevent it End quote. And that's what Velitis was telling Bradfield because as far as I know, he genuinely was, wasn't aware of everything that Bradfield was kind of getting into. So he believed his friend was innocent. Jay Smith didn't do it. And that's what Bill Bradfield kept telling Velitis. Even though all this time he's saying that, that Jay Smith was going to kill her. Now he's saying, oh, he didn't do it. Who the hell did it then, is what Philitis was asking him. I don't know who did it, but it's not Dr. Smith's style. And that's what Bradfield kept telling them. He didn't believe that Smith did it because his style of killing people wasn't this way, it wasn't whatever. 
you know, beating people and putting them in a trunk and injecting morphine. And I'm not exactly sure how um, Bradfield knew what Dr. Smith's style was, but he claims this wasn't his style. Bill had later been taken to court and he was charged, but he wasn't charged for Susan's murder. He was charged for theft by deception of taking the $25,000 for a phony investment. And he was going to use a boat or use it for a boat. Politis and Wendy Zeigler had to testify as well. Wendy was given immunity if she agreed to testify, and Papas also testified about when Bill asked him to wipe fingerprints off of the $25,000. The jury did deliberate for about 90 minutes on August 3rd in 1981, and Bradfield was then sentenced to up to two years in jail in December of 81. He was released when Joanna Aikens paid his bail on January 28th, 1983. Meanwhile, an investigator for Susan's murder, one of the important investigators, had actually passed away of a fatal heart attack at the age of 57. He was actually practicing on a shooting range. This was Joe Van Nort, and he suddenly just dropped over on the shooting range of a heart attack. There was eventually enough evidence that would possibly charge Bill Bradfield for the murder later, but at the time, he had only been charged for the taking the $25,000. And Wendy Zeigler was also arrested at this time because she had been hiding the $25,000 in a safety deposit box. And she had also been taking some money out of it. And she took money out of it on the day that Susan and her children disappeared. But most investigators kind of didn't believe that Zeigler didn't have anything to do with this theft. She was like adamant that she had no idea that he stole it from Susan and all this. And she just kept saying she was innocent of that. She didn't know anything about it. She was just doing what Bradfield had asked her, but most investigators didn't really believe her. But she refused to cooperate with the police and they needed her testimony. So they kind of arrested her and it was to scare her so she would kind of give evidence against Bradfield. Three days before the theft trial of Bradfield, he filed suit to collect on Reinhardt's life insurance policies. Zeigler then offered to testify against him and was granted immunity. Judge Robert Wright presided over the trial for theft by deception. He reminded the jury that they were just trying the theft and they were not trying the murder. They were claiming her death had nothing to do with, you know, this, this particular case. There was a defense attorney for Bradfield and he told the jury that the prosecution wanted them to believe that because Mr. Bradfield had saved some money over a period of years, that he has to be guilty. So that was the, that was kind of his defense in this trial was, no, this is money I saved to buy a boat, but everyone knew that. Chris Papas then testified about he and Bradfield, um, how they had wiped the money. Like I'd said earlier, he was asked to wipe all of it, which is really weird. And then he testified that Bradfield told him he had asked Zeigler to take the money out and put back 300 in the box so that it wouldn't be suspiciously empty. It was a very weird case that a lot of people were involved in, 
but they claim that they didn't know what was going on. They were only doing what Bradfield had asked them. They claim they didn't know that he was taking the money from Susan and that they just thought it was money he had saved. So it's kind of depressing because he involved all of these people in this. So Bradfield did about two years, close to two years in prison from what it seems until he was bailed out. And then, so he was bailed out in January of 1983. And he was visiting some friends when he was suddenly arrested for the murder of Susan Reinhardt, Karen Reinhardt, and Michael Reinhardt on April 6th of 1983. So literally a few months after he was free from prison for the crime of the phony investment and taking Susan's money, he was arrested for her murder. And he spent, you know, some, he went straight back to prison. And then on the first night there, it was claimed that somebody in the prison had been taunting him saying that he killed their teacher and killed those babies. So it apparently was somebody that Susan Reinhardt had taught in her past. And this guy was, you know, just taunting Bradfield because he didn't believe he was guilty. And then Bradfield's trial began on October 15th of 1983. And the jury kind of heard about Susan's will and her insurance policies, how she randomly changed her will and randomly opened all of these life insurance policies. And then Bradfield's friends, Politis and Papas, had to testify again to his supposed concern about Smith plotting to kill Susan. And then they learned about the fibers on Susan's body. And the fibers on her body did match some fibers in Smith's home. And a hair found in Smith's home actually microscopically matched Susan's hair. And then that um, 79th U.S. Arcom comb that was found in the tire well of her corpse supposedly belonged to um, Dr. J. Smith as well. So I guess the prosecutor didn't make any attempt to link Bradfield directly to the hair, the comb, or the fibers. But it was kind of used to suggest that Bradfield had participated in a conspiracy with Smith. So they both were conspiring to kill her and... Then it was enacted. Neighbors testified to seeing Bill Bradfield's Volkswagen parked in front of Susan's house all night. So that was kind of odd. And then Florence Reinert, which was Susan's former mother-in-law and grandmother to the children, also testified about her being a great mother and how she was good to her kids. And at one point, Susan's son, Michael, had told her that they were going to get a van when they went to Europe with Bill. And Florence had asked him, well, who is Bill? And Michael said, Bill Bradfield, my mother's friend. So the weird thing is, it was claimed that Bill had told them he was going to take him to England and take him on a trip. But he had told others that that was, that was not happening. He didn't love her like that. And she was crazy and making this up and all of this. But it's just, it's stupid. He made all of these promises to her and her children and... He was telling everyone else he didn't even love her at all and everything. And then another prisoner had testified, Proctor Knoll. He made friends with Bradfield in prison. He testified that Bradfield told him that Susan and the kids had been killed because he was in a financial bond and he needed that money. He said it wasn't meant for the kids. It was only meant for Susan, but he couldn't really leave any stones unturned. So 
he was going to kill her, he was going to kill the children too. Chris Pappas also testified, and there was a piece of paper introduced to him where Bradfield had written these random, random incriminating phrases on. So the paper said, fingerprints on money, I was there during insurance man's visit, perjury at St. David's, and lured and killed kids, taped her. So he just wrote down these random phrases that pretty much no one else would understand. So Papa's was kind of asked about this to see if, you know, he could provide any insight about this. But on the day he took the stand, the court had to be recessed because Bradfield was sick. And then the next day he, he was able to take the witness stand. And Bradfield was a very boisterous, loud person, you know, it seemed from what he had done and how dramatic he was that he was very like, confident and stuck on himself but they said when he took the stand he was very subdued you could barely understand him and his attorney kind of took him through his relationship with dr smith and how he pretended to be a close friend of the principal in the hopes that he could curb the homicidal man's tendencies so he, the way they were putting it was from what i gathered that the bradfield had claimed he was pretending to be Dr. J. Smith's friend so that maybe he could convince him not to kill Susan. But of course, most other people didn't buy this and I don't buy this. I think that he became his friend to get him to help kill Susan. I think he wanted help and he, he went to Smith. And then Bradfield had said, I was spending more and more time with Smith by the Christmas of 1978. I was spending more and more time trying to be near Sue Reinhardt, Reinhardt to see if she was okay. I was at the point of taking Dr. Smith seriously enough that I checked on Susan Reinhardt almost constantly. And Bradfield's attorney said, well, why didn't you go to the police at this point? And I guess the way Bradfield explained it was that he and his friend Velitis and Chris to a lesser extent talked about what we should do, but we didn't know whether we really believed it. And we didn't think we knew enough to be able to trust the police in light of what Dr. Smith was saying. The more seriously we took him, the more afraid we became to do anything. We were prisoners of our own fear. I don't believe this at all. I don't believe they were afraid. I think that um, that was Bradfield's plan the entire time was to look afraid around his friends. But in reality, he was best friends with Smith to try to kind of orchestrate this whole entire plan to kill her and get some money because... You know, she had opened a lot of life insurance policies and it was stated that her estate was worth $1.1 million and that would obviously help him out of his financial situation. So, Bradfield then stated that he had never planned to kill Reinhardt and he did not kill her children and he never planned to kill her children. So, eventually... He was tried for her murder, like I was just stating the trial, and he he was convicted on three counts of conspiracy to commit murder on October 28th of 1983, and Bradfield was sentenced to three life sentences to be, to be served consecutively. And I kind of liked what the prosecutor had stated at the end of the whole The whole trial, um, Prosecutor Guida had delivered a very powerful and emotional summation. It says he focused on the fact that the children's remains were never found while Susan's were kind of deliberately displayed to the public. 
because her car was parked in a parking lot and she was stuffed in the trunk, but the trunk was propped open. It was almost like somebody was asking her to be found. And so Guida said, quote, what were the children worth to the defendant as opposed to the rest of the 6 billion people in the world? Who benefits from this scenario? Why weren't the three of them in the car? Or in the alternative, if you're talking about Smith, why isn't Susan Reiner in the same place with her children who have never been found? Whoever did this, whoever helped in the commission of this crime, was savvy enough to make sure that those children's bodies would never be found. But he took the awful chance of driving a dead body all the way to Harrisburg and parking it in a public parking lot. And he walked around behind that car and opened the hatch for the world to see the exposed body of Susan Reinhardt. Do you know why the body was exposed? Because this body is worth to one person in the world $7,000 a pound. And it had to be found during the alibi weekend so that he could say to the world, I couldn't possibly have done it. No one else benefits from this scenario. No one could have taken this chance unless they did it for Bill Bradfield, because nobody collects on insurance unless they have a body. Perhaps that's the final irony. The big mistake was when he killed the children, because I couldn't make this argument to you if it was Susan Reinhardt alone, but they panicked. The children were worth anything, but a real measure of irony, a real measure of justice is that the children's lives were perhaps not sacrificed in vain because their absence at this scene speaks so loudly of the defendant's guilt that I submit to you, it is impossible to ignore. No one else benefits in this terrible chance of exposing the body except the defendant. Today is October 28, 1983. Five years ago today, Susan Reinhardt's mother died and the plan to kill her began. And today, the conspiracy ends and we are going to leave this to you, end quote. And so that's what the prosecutor stated to the court. And then, of course, Bradfield was ultimately convicted and received three life sentences. And then two whole years later, Smith was actually charged with the murders of Susan, Karen, and Michael as well on June 25th of 1985. So it was six years to the day after Susan's naked body was found in the parking lot. And Smith was finally, I mean, he was already in prison, but he was, he was um, told about this from his cell. He was told that you're going to be tried in these murders. So Guido was also the prosecution in this as well in Smith's case. And Vince Velitis suggested that the sand that was found on Reinhardt's feet in the car could have come from picking up her son who'd been playing baseball up at the sand lot. And much of the testimony that was featured in this trial was kind of a rerun of the earlier trials, both that of Bradfield for murder and that of Smith for theft by deception. Costopoulos did believe that Smith was guilty in the theft by deception, pretending to be the Brinks worker, but he was kind of outraged when it came to the murders because he thought that there was an admissible hearsay and prejudicial statements from the witnesses when they testified to the things Bradfield told them about Smith. And Guida readily conceded that it was fantasy made up by Bradfield, but the repetition of horrors ascribed to the defendant had to have a prejudicial effect. So Costopoulos tried to make it seem that the witnesses could not be trusted. Um, that would be Chris Papas, Velitis, and everyone of that nature, all the friend group. Chris Papas was questioned, and the lawyer Costopoulos said, what instrumentalities of crime did you turn over to the authorities? And Papas said that he had turned over some ski masks, some chains and locks that went with them, and a bugging device. And he turned over a 357 Magnum. Those are the items I immediately recall. And Papas also talked about grinding the numbers of the serial numbers off of 
a 30 caliber with acid, but he said he didn't do the acid. He was trying to grind them. And he was stating that he did this to protect Susan Reiner from Dr. Smith, but it's kind of weird to me why he was grinding the grinding the numbers off of the guns. So I'm assuming he was supposedly grinding them off for Bradfield so that if Bradfield had to shoot Smith, he is protecting Reinert, that the gun wouldn't be traceable, things of that nature, which is very weird. I truly don't think that Volitis and Pappas had anything to do with the murder. I do. Part of me believes that they really didn't know that Bradfield was involved or going to be involved. And they were believing this nonsense that Bradfield was telling them that Smith was after her and not him. But they all, they all did some shady stuff um, to Reiner, whether they were aware of it or not with the taking of the money and helping hide it and everything. But I'm not sure how much they really knew. I think they were just doing what they were told, which they were all grown adults, but this kind of makes me mad because if somebody asked me to wipe fingerprints off of $25,000, I'm going to be suspicious and I'm probably not going to do it. So the fact that they did it for him and did all these things without question is really weird to me. He had such a powerful influence over them that he probably exercised some fear. He, he might've threatened them or he, they were just afraid of him, I think. So I think that they were, they were terrified and they just did everything that that he asked. Very weird. Very weird influence he had over all of his friends. And then later, Jay Smith was also convicted of three counts of murder by the next day. And soon after that, he was sentenced to death. He showed almost no emotion as the sentence was pronounced. And Kostopoulos said that Smith leaned over and he told his attorney who had lost the case, you flunk. So that's kind of creepy. But it says that Bill Bradfield had said in some articles that he had settled into his confinement at maximum security, a greater food prison on February 19th of 1985. And then I guess a mob of inmates went to a cell at about 9 p.m. and demanded he go to the payphone and call the father of the children so that he could tell them where the bodies were because he needed to have a decent burial for his children. So people were harassing Bradfield in prison, saying that he needed to come out with where the bodies were because the father deserved to know and the father deserved to give them a proper burial, which is... Is funny to me because it's true. I mean, even if there there were other inmates in there that were, you know, bad people, they were kind of sticking up for um, Kenneth Reinhardt, who was the father of the children that went missing and saying, hey, you need to tell this man where they are. So even they felt that it was wrong that no one was talking about the children. And then Bradfield had said that he never expressed a word of guilt or remorse for the murders and he died on January 16th, 1998, of a heart attack at the age of 64. And Jay Smith, who was 58 at the time of his conviction, was placed on death row in a tiny little isolated cell. He often would spend his days exercising and he would read. Supposedly he read the Bible a lot. And he wrote letters to his brother, William, and his youngest daughter, Sherry. And then his lawyer, 
Kostopoulos was convinced they had grounds for an appeal. In July of 1986, an anonymous tipster clued the lawyer in to another ground for appeal. The caller said, contrary to the assertions of both witness and prosecution, Raymond Martre had gotten a deal in exchange for his testimony. Costobolos uncovered evidence that the district attorney's office had known of the lifters that picked up sand from Reiner's feet and still withheld it from the defense. So he went to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court with these issues, and on December 22, 1989, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court delivered a Christmas present to convicted murderer Jay Smith. It ruled that he was entitled to a new trial. Smith remained in prison, but he was taken off of death row. And that was also not the last or surprising victory that Kostopoulos would win for his client. He sought a change in Pennsylvania's law regarding double jeopardy, one that would preclude the prosecution from a retrial if they had, as Kostopoulos alleged they had in Smith's case, engaged in intentional, willful, and deliberate prosecutorial misconduct. It took three more years before the state court ruled on the argument. On September 18, 1992, the court ruled in favor and ordered that Jay Smith be released. So Jay Smith was released from prison and to be part, I don't know how to put this, uh, it's in my opinion, I'm not sure if Smith ever had anything to do with it, but I strongly believe that Bradfield did. Bradfield was just a terrible, shady piece of shit. He admitted basically that, you know, he needed to do this for financial gain, things of that nature. And just the way he treated Susan the entire time they were together, you know, he was telling her, he was leading her on, saying he loved her and they were going to get married and telling all the, these other people that she was just some creep, basically, that was obsessed with him. Bradfield was the person with the most motive and was the shadiest. And I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about Smith. Um, I just don't think that there's proper evidence to convict him. I really do believe that Bradfield was just accusing Smith because, you know, he's got to take the blame off of off himself. So I don't know. I mean, maybe they could have been working together like, you know, I thought, but that's crazy. This is a very, very crazy, crazy situation. Um, a lot of people, I know this, this really enraged a lot of people and they were kind of repulsed by the court's decision to let Smith out because they strongly believe Smith had murdered her and her two children. Ken Reiner was really enraged about it and sickened. And his stepdaughter said that she was deathly afraid for him to be released because she thought that maybe he would come for them too. And so after this article was written, it was said that Smith was living in Pennsylvania in 2001, 2002, and he was in very good physical health at the time. I do kind of believe, I mean, he's not a good person just because of the robberies he had pulled off. But uh, I just don't think, I mean, he might have been weird and everything of that nature, but I just don't think he, I don't think he had a reason. And it's sad that all of these people, and another thing is that Bradfield hoodwinked, as it says, like he tricked all of his friends, Chris Pappas, Valitis, Sue Myers. They, they all were tricked. They were all deceived by this man, um, Bradfield, and 
just because of, of him doing all of that, I just strongly believe he's guilty. And he did die in prison, so... Chris Pappas was working in construction at one point after the trial. Sue Myers and Vince Philitis were allowed to teach again by Upper Marion. And then Sue Myers eventually moved and was living in West Virginia. Philitis stayed at Upper Marion, and he's the head of the English department. And he also states that the case still causes him anxiety because it will never go away. People tend to forget that this was a great personal tragedy for me and many people involved. I've learned a great deal about sociopathic personalities and the nature of evil, end quote. And that's what Bellida stated. Wendy Zeigler is reportedly a Carmelite nun. Really weird. In California. Uh, weird that she switched over to that, but hey. And Joanne Aiken is an architect in Boston. So all of these people kind of moved on. At least physically moved on. So they all, they all moved on from this with a lot of a lot of fear and anxiety. It just it essentially destroyed their lives for a while, what Bradfield did to them. And at the time of that article, which I believe was in 2002, it was stated that J.C. Smith was still doing very well and he had returned to Pennsylvania, or I guess he was still in Pennsylvania. Um, but he did pass away on May 12th of 2009. I had just located that. So it's crazy to me, but I do, I mean, I am glad that he was able to clear his name if he truly didn't do anything before he passed away and he lived the rest of his life. But the sad part is now that this has never been solved. They claim it's unsolved. I don't believe it's unsolved, technically. If you believe that Bradfield did it, it's not really unsolved. I believe that Bradfield did it. The only sad part is and the only, the part that's unsolved really is where are her children? They were never located. Um, it was never even discussed because Bradfield claimed that he didn't do this. So he didn't want to go and admit guilt by saying, well, the bodies of the children are here. So the children have never been found to this day. And that's really the depressing part of the entire thing. And there have been cases that are older than this that have been solved recently. So. I guess the best thing to do is just to continue holding out hope that someday those babies will be found. All right, everyone, that concludes this episode of It's Crime Time. If you could please rate and subscribe, preferably on Spotify or whatever platform you get your podcasts, that would be great. I appreciate everyone who listens, everyone who supports this podcast. Always, always will appreciate that because I know that my posts and everything of that nature have been extremely sporadic in the years that I've done this but it's something I still thoroughly enjoy. So I really appreciate everything. Thank you for listening and until next time.